There won't be more money later to allocate to building a sustainable economy that is inclusive, that creates employment. So misallocating scarce resources now, I think, even has the effect of slowing growth in the long term, slowing investment, and makes that longer term opportunity even harder to grasp. Welcome to the Energy 360 podcast. I'm Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. We're living through one of the worst economic shocks in the century, and governments are spending unprecedented amounts to help protect public health, employment, and investment. The IMF estimates that governments around the world have committed $16 trillion in public spending to cope with COVID-19. And the scale of this effort means that this crisis also presents a real opportunity. Investment in infrastructure, transport, and energy can help support a transition to greener economies. And there's been a great deal of focus on how to prioritize a green recovery from COVID-19. But it's also important to make this recovery fair. At the Just Transition Initiative, which is a joint research effort between CSIS and the Climate Investment Funds, we've just written a new paper called A Just Green Recovery from COVID-19. And today we'll talk about this topic with two experts, Brian O'Callaghan of the Oxford University Economic Recovery Project and Jesse Burton from the University of Cape Town and E3G. So Brian and Jesse, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Brian, let me turn to you to kick things off. You've written a lot about COVID-19 recovery packages around the world. And just curious about some of your big takeaways about green recovery spending that we've seen so far. So when we add up global recovery spending, how much are we talking about? And what is the breakdown that you see between the OECD economies versus developing countries? Fantastic. Thank you for that intro, Ben. It's great to be joining you on the pod today. Look, here at Oxford, we, as you say, have been tracking government spending on COVID-19 around the world. And I might actually one-up the IMF's $16 trillion tally. We're probably up closer to $19 trillion or so now. In terms of the key takeaways that we can draw out from that spending so far, and particularly from the green spending, We generally highlight three areas that we share with everyone from presidents to activists. So the first key takeaway on green spending is actually to take a step back and ask the question of, well, why spend green at all? The takeaway is that well-targeted green spending can simultaneously strengthen both the economy and the environment. It's been a a long time fallacy that green is bad for the economy. But last year I showed in a paper with Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz and a bunch of others that in fact you can use green initiatives to both stimulate economic growth, create jobs, while also building a more sustainable environment. So that's the first key takeaway that green actually can be quite good for the economy. That being said, the second takeaway is that governments so far aren't prioritizing a green recovery. Only 18% of recovery-specific spending in 2020 went to supporting a greener reality. And if you talk about total spending, so that's 18% of recovery spending, which we can get to in a second, but total spending, only 1.5% has been green. And even that small percentage has come from just a tiny handful of high-income countries. 
So in one breath here, we have governments talking about, you know, building back better and how they're creating a more prosperous future. But in the next, they're supporting the literal status quo that we have dealt with for the past decades. So that second takeaway, I suppose, is governments aren't doing enough. They can do more and they need to do more. And then the third key piece, um, you asked me about OECD economies versus developing countries. This is kind of the scary part. I mean, it's all scary, but in particular, the spread between how high income nations and low income nations have responded to COVID, it's, as I say, a bit scary. We're up to about $13,000 in spending per person in high income countries, but only $10 per person in the least developed countries. And that's not because the least developed countries don't want to spend and don't want to support a return to growth. It's because they can't, you know, they, they just don't have the same access to capital or um, as economists call it, the same fiscal space as high income countries do. And so the gap that we had prior to COVID, um, the gap between rich and poor, it was already mammoth. Unfortunately, over the course of the pandemic, and I'm sure Jesse can tell us all about it, about that gap has only grown. And now we're dealing with this reality where because of different abilities to spend, the high income countries are going to bound up further while low income countries deal with poverty increasing for the first time in 25 years. And look, the consequences of that, they're more than just altruistic. You know, this isn't just us saying we need to protect the weak and the vulnerable. No, the consequences of that are economic as well. They lead to global instability and a world order under undue and dangerous, in many ways, dangerous pressure. So it's a bad outcome for everyone and high income countries need to lend a generous hand there. Thanks for that, Brian. The, the disparity in resources between the rich countries and developing countries is really worrying. You know, of course, in many ways, we're still kind of in the early days of this pandemic. And we all know about the disparity in vaccination rates between the OECD countries and, and others. I want to touch on one other aspect of the spending patterns that we've seen today that you've written about. You make a distinction between short-term relief or emergency spending versus longer-term recovery spending. Can you explain what the difference is and talk a little bit about the balance that we see in terms of global spending to date? Yeah, absolutely. So we define rescue spending as that which is intended to protect lives, businesses, and livelihoods, right? It's to, keep, it's to keep people alive. Whereas recovery spending is a bit longer term in nature, designed to reinvigorate an economy and get things going again. For most of the world over the last year, we've been in a very rescue focused phase. And in fact, I think 87% of spending in 2020 was rescue, just about keeping people and businesses alive. The recovery spending, as I say, it's long-term in nature. It's what real stimulus is, and it's where governments also have a lot more flexibility in where they can spend. And so when we're talking about a green recovery, we very much are talking about this recovery type of spending. Um, and it's in that department that governments can choose to, as we say, either support the status quo of fossil-dependent industries or otherwise choose to decouple growth from emissions and invest in new and more sustainable modes of production and just maintenance. So that's where governments have their choice. That's why we talk a lot about recovery. Um, here you can you know, quite clearly see where the press has maybe gone a little bit off track. They talk a lot about stimulus packages and stimulus checks. 
in fact, most of that hasn't been stimulatory at all. It's just been about keeping people alive. Now the focus is on recovery in much of the world, but at the same time, in other parts of the world, particularly lower income, medium income countries, the focus is still on that rescue side and uh, discrepancies in, in vaccine availability are supporting that too. Jesse, I want to turn to you now and bring you into the conversation. You're based in, in Cape Town. I wonder if you could just help us understand how COVID-19 is affecting some of the socioeconomic challenges in, in South Africa, issues like unemployment, inequality, you know, damage to important sectors, including the energy industry. Maybe you can just help us with the, the broad context of what you see happening in, in South Africa as a result of COVID-19. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. And, and thanks to Brian for that, that very fascinating and I agree, very scary introduction to the, the kind of disparities being faced in the world around recovery spending. So for people who aren't very familiar with South Africa, South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. We were already before COVID. COVID and the associated response measures have only exacerbated that. It was, we were a country that already had extremely high levels of poverty um, measured almost in any way you think, but I think always a very striking measurement is household hunger. And then roughly 25% of households before the COVID pandemic couldn't meet their, their basic food needs every month. What has happened, especially last year, you know, we lost more than 2 million jobs between quarter one and quarter two, which doesn't seem a lot for kind of very big countries. But you're looking at a situation where South Africa was already almost 40% unemployment and it's well now well over 40% unemployment. This is a huge shock to the economy. It's mostly impacted, especially women. So there's also gendered kind of component to what has happened. And even now, um, as kind of the economy has started to reopen more and go to restaurants again, kind of the hardest lockdown is lifted. Um, employment is still sitting at 10% down from 2019. We we can still see that between 30 and 40% of households are facing hunger right now already in, in you know, in, in the country, even though we're, we're kind of starting to recover. The damage to industries has sort of been variable. You know, mining's done okay. Uh, some bits of trade have done better. Agriculture's up, in fact. Um, but there's been a real knock, for example, in tourism. So tourism is at 30% of where it was two years ago. And, and although this isn't the energy sector, it's, it's an important employer. It's an important part of the non-energy economy in South Africa. In the energy economy, Again, <laughs> like the whole economy, before COVID, we, we were already in a crisis. Our utility was is an, an operational and financial crisis, very coal intensive, very much not a green recovery example. Um, and e despite the kind of economic crisis that we were in last year, there was still uh, what is called load shedding, which is basically controlled blackouts for 10% of the year when demand was was more than 5% down for, for most of the year. So it's, it's very, very challenging being in, in the developing world in this context, I think. You know, as Brian says, there's been so much focus on rescue. You know, even in South Africa, that hasn't, the, the, the rescue elements of recovery have been fairly limited. And I'm sure that that's something that's seen across the developing world, let alone starting to talk about recovery. Yeah, Jesse, you're, you're an expert in just transition. So I want to connect those dots later and talk a little bit about how you see this crisis affecting the, the just transitions efforts. But, you know, th those points you made about the realities of South Africa, I think are really important. I'm just curious to get your perspective on countries like South Africa that have more limited resources and, and big challenges with debt and high borrowing costs. I mean, do you think it's realistic for governments like this in the global South to spend more on green recovery and to be able to focus on it, given all these other economic challenges? Clearly, it's incredibly difficult to be in a developing country and to try and think about how to allocate scarce resources across such a challenge like COVID. 
it's much more complicated in situations where countries have high levels of debt, where they don't have access to cheap global finance like rich countries can access. What that has kind of translated into is seeing very limited support for small business, quite limited support for, for people. So in some ways, it's almost a moot point, right? Poor countries are simply not able to provide enough support either in the short term or the medium term. Of course, you know, taking a step back from that, all governments have to always carefully assess how to allocate scarce resources. And it's obviously more challenging where these short-term needs are kind of outweighing the long-term considerations. But in fact, I think the scarcity makes this an even more pressing issue. You know, if you're South Africa, you've got high levels of debt, you've got limited fiscal headroom, extreme social challenges that you need to address. That situation is not going to change in the short or medium term. There won't be more money later to allocate to building a sustainable economy that is inclusive, that creates employment. So misallocating scarce resources now, I think, even has the effect of slowing growth in the long term, slowing investment, and makes that longer term opportunity even harder to grasp. Particularly in South Africa, measures that can stimulate the economy that will actually provide meaningful change is kind of a unique opportunity. We can take a really unsustainable development pathway, high unemployment, high emissions, kind of a, a crisis in biodiversity and on almost any metric you, you want to look at, South Africa is unsustainable. And we can say, right, we have to have a recovery of some sort. Is it going to be the same old thing that isn't just? that is in the long term not going to be sustainable and competitiveness? Or can we use this as an opportunity to build an inclusive, job-rich and resilient society? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's never an easy time to do this, but we're kind of in a unique moment where governments are really thinking about large-scale public spending in a way that we haven't seen for a long time because this is kind of a generational crisis. Brian, you mentioned earlier that you and your colleagues have found that there's too little focus on a green recovery and that governments are failing to prioritize this enough. I'm just curious about whether or not you think it's too late. How much room is there at this point to reshape where and how the money is being spent? Are there a lot of funds that have been you know, allocated but not really directed to specific spending yet? And can we turn around this focus and, and, and prioritize the green recovery and future spending? Yeah, it's a great and central question, Ben. And before I get to it, just to tag on a little bit to Jesse's description there, we here at Oxford have done quite a lot of work trying to understand how governments in the global south may gain access to capital to spend more. Jesse did a really good job at describing the need to be careful about how every dollar is spent. And I couldn't agree more with her on that. You know, we can use every taxpayer dollar to meet more than just a pure economic objective. And um, we can be really productive in how we spend every dollar. But at the same time, we need to do more. Um, South Africa is a little bit unique as it has a bit of a uh, more developed private sector and has more private capital to access. And I know that the government there is trying to get more private sector investment to, to help. Uh, many other even lower developed countries don't quite have that luxury and just have no options. So there is a big need then for the international community to look beyond their own borders. I know it's really hard in COVID, but it's essential to look beyond their own borders and provide some help, uh, whether that's through direct grants or concessional finance or some type of guarantee agreements, we need to be doing more. But Ben, to your question now about whether it's actually too late to do anything on green spending, uh, green recovery spending, and how much room there is to reshape where money is being spent? A, no, it's certainly not too late. And to explain that a little bit more, we just talked about 
how 87% of spending has gone towards rescue, right? Governments have been rightly focused on just keeping things going. Now, as many in higher income nations are able to focus on recovery, more attention is going towards those projects. And we expect almost 2 trillion from the US in recovery type spending through their jobs plan in the next few months. So there's certainly big opportunities left in terms of announced spending or to be announced spending. And then there's also continuing opportunities on the implementation side. Uh, there are significant chances to use what we would consider traditional types of spending, for example, school investment, hospital investment, and others, opportunities to use that spending in a way that incentivizes some green industry too. So uh, green strings. So for example, um, you might require that a new hospital is energy efficient and uses green materials. By creating that new demand for those types of materials, you stimulate the private sector to come out and develop those capabilities and you drive down the price of that, which then makes it cheaper for everyone else, right? Or perhaps if you're investing in a new school, uh, you could require solar panels or renewable energy generation to provide all power for that school. The school is going to need lights, right? So you may as well use that new investment as an opportunity to stimulate some of these green industries as well. So to summarize, no, it's certainly not too late. We can both do more in terms of spending that's to be announced, and we can use already announced spending in a productive way through the implementation phase. All right, and maybe just one final point before we, I pass back over. A couple of countries, not a couple, a handful of countries have announced some dirty type policies, initiatives that actually act to exacerbate the existing climate crisis, and in many cases just don't make economic sense. So my home in Australia, the Prime Minister has recently announced a new spending package for a new gas-fired electricity generation facility. It's something that every reliable economist in the country and the energy market regulator has said we don't need, and yet the government is choosing to use public money to finance it. Initiatives like that don't make sense. They're unacceptable. Until the money is out the door, there's an opportunity to stop it. So we can be doing a little bit of work there too. Well, I want to pivot now and talk a little bit in more detail about the relationship between this economic recovery and the Just Transition. So in our own work at the Just Transition Initiative, we have looked at how green recovery spending can help advance the Just Transition. We've looked at it through that lens. And you know, basically, we found that, not surprisingly, the most important principles and practices of the just transition really haven't been reflected in spending so far. For example, there's not many great examples of spending that's targeted towards certain groups and communities that are really in need and that will be vulnerable in an energy transition. And definitely not too many examples of inclusive processes so that the people have a voice in the types of plans and priorities that are, that are being proposed here. And those are kind of the core tenets of, a, of the just transition to lower emissions, less carbon intensive economies. But Jesse, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Can you talk a little bit about how you see COVID-19 helping or hurting the just transition effort? In looking at things like emergency spending and short-term relief, do you think we're missing an opportunity here? I'm a little bit sympathetic to how hard it is to kind of build back better and to do that very fast while still having a just process. 
Um, and it seems from just transition processes internationally, you know, it has a degree of slowness of bringing everyone along, of letting people's voices be heard. There's that kind of social dialogue part of, of inclusiveness versus the kind of pressure that's been on governments to do rescue. And that is now they're kind of pivoting into this discussion of recovery without, I think, really thinking through how, how to make that process just. But I think, you know, as, as Brian has said, we are definitely missing opportunities to green even just the middle ground of, of the economy. You know, as I've said, given very scarce resources, we can't afford to not have a recovery that's inclusive and just. So in the South African context, you know, you want to move away from being the most unequal society in the world and having, the, you know, some of very high per capita emissions. So the response has to contribute to reducing poverty, it has to kind of address inequality. And to do that, you need to be explicitly biased towards vulnerable groups. Um, in our context, that's the unemployed, low-income communities, workers, small business, youth and women. And that can enable a just transition also towards a new model of development. And that has to focus on employment creation and new opportunities reaching everyone in society. Now, a huge part of just transition is related to economic diversification, but I think, um, you know, also to social protection and service delivery. So I, I think there is an opportunity to kind of bring these two ideas together, the economic diversification and kind of shifting your energy sector. That is the, the kind of live discussion and just transition. You're looking after workers, you're looking after fossil fuel dependent communities, you you know, that needs to also be expanded to, to other sectors. Uh, it's not just, I work specifically on coal, but it, you know, it's bigger than just coal. But the way you can pivot it is to say, look, we need a large focus on systems that work for people, on good, decent jobs. That can be in sectors like renewable energy that also deliver emissions outcomes, but it can also be around enhanced public transport or just public transport systems at all on food security and, and food systems. And COVID has shown that we need sustainable systems and we need sustainable infrastructure. And we have to do that while addressing climate change, poverty, biodiversity loss. And they're kind of targeted focus in key areas, I think. I mean, one, one really key one would be the energy sector. So energy is the largest contributor to emissions. There's a clear need for energy security interventions. One, it's about shifting from fossil fuels to renewable energy, etc. But it's also about making sure that there's access to clean and affordable energy services. Instead, we can see that the world's gone backwards through COVID. You know, people are losing access to, to modern energy services. So it would align with the principles of a just transition to reduce emissions, reduce the health impacts, which are you know, impact women and children especially, and ensures that people have access to energy. And there are these kinds of places where you, you can do both. You can find what's just and what will also bring you kind of a long-term beneficial outcome. Um, but I'm not sure governments are there yet. Um, I'm not sure there's enough focus on bringing these, these ideas together yet. Jesse, maybe I can ask you to speak a little bit more about that. In South Africa, the, the issue of energy access has been a big problem in the past. There have been efforts to expand renewable energy in the country. There's been some criticism of those efforts for not you know, gearing them enough towards um, helping the poor improve their energy access. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not you see progress there happening? And do you think that this is a moment where we could see some renewed attention and focus on that? Yeah, so South Africa's always had um one our challenge is, is somewhat different to, to other parts of Africa, I think, where really there's a big challenge just getting generation capacity and grid built out. We have an existing grid, we have an existing utility, and we've 
actually had a very good ESCOM. Our, our utility has been really successful at connecting people at a household level to the grid. But the challenge has always been around affordability. So you have households who continue to supplement electricity use with dung or coal, especially in coal regions or wood, or who can't afford to see, see the whole month out in, in terms of electricity. Now, one of the challenges has been that electricity prices have gone up and up and up over time. Uh, we, in this strange situation, we don't have cost-reflective tariffs yet. But ESCOM has invested very heavily in some in two coal-fired power plants, which it can't pay the debt back on. And so getting you know tariff increases have been an important part of actually keeping the utility alive. Kind of important aspect, and one of the reasons we have limited fiscal headroom to deal with COVID is that the state is bailing out ESCOM every year between 30 and 50 billion uh, rand. I don't know what that is in dollars, divide by 15. <laughs> um, but, you know, a not insignificant portion is, is is trying to prop up this utility that was very heavily exposed to, to coal investments pre-COVID, which is now limiting the state's ability to respond to, to other issues. Now, you know, we also have load shedding. As we were about to record this, I had to warn everyone that my elect the electricity might go off because there's load shedding today. These very old coal-fired power plants are not sustainable. But there's a lot of fears about new renewable energy um, coming into the grid, that it will impact coal workers, that it will undermine the economies, that will lead to ghost towns in particular areas in South Africa. For me, I, I see renewables as a win a green recovery win for South Africa right now in two ways. I mean, you can, at a household level, we could actually think about how to enable that for households to earn inco an income or for community-owned renewables. But also having new generation capacity is one of the key things that we can do as a stimulus for the country, one of the key interventions we can do as a stimulus for the country. And this has been recognized in the in the government's economic recovery plan. Energy security is a huge focus. And renewables offer a whole lot of advantages in that way. They're the cheapest option, new new generation capacity option. They actually create more jobs than coal does, and they address our emissions issues and allow us to kind of get our ND, you know, update our NDCs and meet our long-term goals. But it's not happening. Here, like elsewhere, like Australia. Um, there's often political attachment to other industries, to to the the dirty industries, the industries that countries were built on, where governments understand them, they know how they work, um, and they feel attached to them. And that's really hard to do in an emergency to pivot to things, to new sectors that maybe not everything is really um, the institutional frameworks are not there, the policy frameworks are there. It feels new, new and scary for for policymakers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a global story, and in times of crisis and pressure, there's always a tendency to bail out the industries you know and protect the industries and workers that you see and you're aware of. Um, and that means sometimes protecting incumbents and, and existing industries. Brian, let me turn to you. I wanna talk about where we go from here. Um, you've already mentioned a couple examples, I think, but what do you think are some promising sectors that deserve more support as we try to accelerate a green recovery? And I'm curious if you see examples in Europe or other regions of countries that are doing this well, and also maybe thinking about targeting investments and programs to help certain communities and areas that are in need. Perhaps I should give a little bit of context on the Global Recovery Observatory, which is what we use to track spending around the world. It's a partnership with the United Nations Environment Program, United Nations Development Program, a couple of other UN agencies, um, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, and the German Development Aid Program. This initiative, as I say, tracks 
spending across the world, but it also categorizes it into different green types of spending and then different traditional and other types of spending. And if you go to Google, you can just type in Oxford Global Recovery Observatory and you will find a database of over 5,000 different policy items across the world and you can really see where governments are spending and where they're not. Interestingly, in high-income countries, we've seen quite a uniform spread across some of these green investment areas ranging from clean energy to sustainable transport to natural capital infrastructure, green research and development programs. It's very widespread. And from my perspective, that kind of makes sense, right? Every country is different. Every country is in a different position of a development cycle. They have different competitive advantages and therefore different policy priorities. It demonstrates that there are opportunities everywhere and Governments who are looking intentionally to the future can find particular niches for economic growth and should focus their attention to those niches. Outside of high income nations, so in developing contexts, we've seen a big skew towards renewable energy investment and uh, natural capital or nature-based solutions. Both of those also make quite a bit of sense. And we encourage those nations in most cases to continue pursuing those goals and to pursue them with greater vigor. Renewable energy investment unlocks huge additional economic opportunities beyond the short-term jobs that it creates. In South Africa, for example, if your renewables were targeted to bring electricity to those who don't have it yet, you turn the lights on literally, allow children to do homework when it goes dark outside, allow people access to the digital economy and digital forms of work. And those types of benefits just, they multiply, right? Uh, on the national capital side, a lot of the time, this is investment in national parks, which serve a big tourism advantage and create big tourism potential or protect future tourism. And so again, it kind of makes sense that governments are spending in that domain. So in Developing countries, as I say, it's quite skewed, but it's not a bad skew necessarily, and we encourage that investment. And I believe the, there was a second part of that question. I think it was about helping certain communities. And we have seen a couple of examples of governments, including some of these, you know, a prioritization for vulnerable communities within their geography. But those are very much outnumbered by the others that don't make any of those specifications that aren't necessarily prioritizing those groups. Again, it's an opportunity to use a little bit to go a long way. And so in every one of our conversations, we're encouraging governments to think about this potential social co-benefits of their spending. You know, how you can boost health outcomes for vulnerable groups by ensuring that the coal plants that you're shutting down are those which are near to people. Um, and are having negative health effects on people. Or if you're investing in new energy efficiency initiatives, targeting those to low-income households where paying for electricity in heating is a serious problem. So we haven't seen as much as we'd like, but certainly uh, are encouraging governments to do more. Yeah, in our own research on adjust green recovery, we've tried to pinpoint some examples, both in OECD countries and developing countries, of government programs that are trying to direct investment or spending towards certain areas in need. And it's definitely early days, but you do see some interesting cases like where there's an effort to you know, support areas in the Northeast and Scotland that were former manufacturing hubs to make sure that things like um, manufacturing for offshore wind 
or hydrogen facilities are kind of cited in those areas, given that they, they have certain skill set and, and, and capital, human capital. But early days, as I said. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to add to that, it's imperative that we keep governments accountable to that rhetoric. Because governments, they know what voters want to hear, and they're very quick to say exactly that. Uh, they're often slow to follow it up with real, well-thought-through uh, and targeted policy. So it's up to us to take the fantastic work that Ben, you and your colleagues have done and ensure that governments actually you know, are held to it. Yeah, absolutely. At some point, it becomes challenging just to track the amounts that have been allocated for all these different sectors because there's a lot of overlap and many commitments and pledges being made. Jesse, let me turn back to you and, and put the focus squarely back on Just Transitions again. So we're headed into COP26 this fall. Just Transitions is definitely on the climate agenda, You know, been a topic of more and more attention in the last couple of years. But I'm curious to get your perspective on whether or not you see the issue moving beyond the realm of, of multilateral development banks and international NGOs, labor groups and advocates, and more towards reality, tangible progress in developing countries. What do you think about that? You know, in, in South Africa, there's always been a strong discussion around just transition from the labor movement, from the environmental justice movement. But we're moving into a situation now where there's there's kind of work towards how do we do a project? How do we define what a just transition project is? How do we repurpose coal-fired power plants and do that in a socially beneficial way? And we can see growing work in India and and, and many of you, you've covered in, in this podcast before the, the wonderful work that's been done, been done in India. But I also see kind of uh, think tanks and civil society and labor organizations in other developing countries starting to grapple with the issues, especially, I mean, in particular, I work in coal phase out and, and just transition, but, uh, you know, around the phase out of coal and, and how that will look, what does it mean for towns where the whole economy is a single coal plant? What does it mean in a town where there's already been so much historical injustice, where miners have lost their lives in poor mining conditions, you know? So I think, yeah, I think it is becoming a reality. I think people are thinking really seriously, how do we do it? just transition. I'm not sure it's intersecting yet with the green recovery discussion as, as, as we've discussed. And, and I think that that is an opportunity that, that we are missing. Thanks, Jesse. I think you did a good job of bringing this back to human reality and to tangible progress on, on actual projects, which of course is what it's all about. Well, I think we're about out of time today. This is such a fascinating topic and it's a really important topic. So I'm very grateful to both Jesse and Brian for being with us today and sharing all their insights and look forward to following all your future work on this. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks to Jesse, Brian, and Ben for this week's very timely discussion of green recovery plans. There's a link on our page to the report, A Just Green Recovery from COVID-19 from the Just Transition Initiative. You can also find more episodes of Energy 360 on our website, csis.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening.